All right, good to be with you all. Um, let's turn, I believe it's 672 in the back of your Trinity hymnal, and let's read the section of the confession together. 672, we are in chapter 3, moving on to paragraph 2 today. That'll be our focus. Oh, is there anyone who didn't receive the email with the outline um, and also doesn't have a, a paper copy? In other words, is there anyone who doesn't have the outline if you want it? Nisa. So wait, raise your hand, guys. Nisa, Linda, and... Did you check your emails? Okay. Adrian, can uh, can Mary get the paper copy? Did you find it, Anissa? Okay, got it? Okay. All right, let's read 672, paragraph 2 of chapter 3, under God's decree. Although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions, yet hath He not decreed anything because He foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions. Okay, let's pray together and ask God's help. Father, as we come to our, our afternoon service together, we pray that you'd give us uh, eager minds to hear your word and understand your word. And uh, Father, especially as we delve into some of these things that can be challenging to think about, especially after lunch, we pray that you would give us uh, attentive minds, give us uh, bodies that are willing and able to to give full attention to Your Word and to the things of God. We pray that You, Father, would grow us in our knowledge of who You are and of Your ways. And so we pray that You would draw near and help each and every one of us. That we would magnify Your name. That we would stand in awe and give You the worship that You are worthy of together with Your Son and Your Spirit. Help us and draw near to us, we pray, this afternoon. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we'll be focusing this afternoon. My manuscript is a, a bit shorter than it sometimes is, so we should have some time for Q&A. And um, we're focusing on paragraph 2 of chapter 3 on God's decree. Paragraph 1, if you remember back uh, last month when Brandon taught, paragraph 1 laid out positively how we should understand God's decree, and it told us what that decree is. Uh, it described it as eternal, a free decree, all-encompassing decree, and on and on. Well, paragraph 2 now describes negatively what the decree is not, so how we should not understand it. And remember, this is important when we read the confession. The confession is a historical document. It was written in a particular historical context. And because of that, it had particular um, controversies that it... Um, addresses that were going on in their day. 
And so at various points in the confession, the authors thought it was wise to include not only affirmations of what we believe, but denials of what we don't believe. And that's something the church has always done uh, to protect the right understanding of Scripture. Um, Sometimes in order to affirm what the Bible does teach, you also have to deny what it doesn't teach. So that's what we're dealing with in paragraph 2. The point of paragraph 2 is to affirm that God's decree is absolutely unconditional over against those who argued that it was conditional. Okay? And I think I put this in your outline. When we affirm that God's decree is unconditional, we mean that it is not conditioned or based upon knowledge of anyone or anything outside of Himself, but rather the decree rests on God's good pleasure alone. And that, that flows and follows from what we've already seen about God's essence in chapter, three, or chapter 2, right? Um, God, we saw, is independent. He is ase, right? Um, in His existence. And therefore, His decree is free and independent from any outside factors or influences. Now, that might seem obvious. I mean, if God is God, then it makes sense that God would cause all things according to His decree. But there are other views that have been introduced that say something different, something otherwise. Um, And so what are they? At least what what are the ones that the confession has in mind? Paragraph 2 is explicitly denying both the Arminian view and what's called Molinism. Okay, And we'll talk about those more at length when we get there. Uh, Both Arminianism and Molinism see a problem between the exhaustive divine decree and human freedom. Okay? They saw a problem there. Um, Arminians and Molinists don't believe what chapter or what paragraph one has just asserted that you can have an exhaustive decree that includes the free actions of men and still retain human freedom and responsibility. They essentially read that and think that that's nonsense, that's impossible. Um, and so they sought to come up with explanations that they thought solved the problem. Okay? Now, before we get into those other systems, what I, what I think would be easier is I think we'll more easily understand those systems if I first lay out for you the Reformed position. Okay? And so that, that's where we're going to start. And then we'll look at Arminian, Arminianism and Molinism. Um, Notice this paragraph uh, centers on how the divine decree relates to God's knowledge. Okay, notice the third word in the paragraph. It begins, although God knoweth or knows all things. That's their concern. Is, uh, that's the writer of the confession's concern. Is Arminians and Molinists had connected the knowledge of God with the decree of God in a way that ultimately eroded the independence of God. Okay? Uh, the way they connected those two made God dependent and it made His decree dependent upon knowledge of things other than God Himself. Uh, so, let, let me lay out for you the Reformed view. Um, some of these things might be new to some of us. They, they might be familiar. Um, when, when we think about God's knowledge, and this is not unique to Reformed theology, by the way, um, even many Roman Catholics, Thomas Aquinas would affirm these two, these two categories. But when we think about God's knowledge, we, we distinguish between um, two categories. Okay, One is called God's necessary knowledge, and the other is called God's free knowledge. 
Okay, and I've put that in your handout. We'll talk about it, and I'll explain. And as I explain, I think you'll understand where they get that title um, of natural knowledge or necessary knowledge and his free knowledge. Um, let's start with necessary knowledge. God's necessary knowledge refers to God's necessary knowledge of himself and consequently his knowledge of all that he is capable of doing. Okay? So, uh, sometimes this is called natural knowledge, God's natural knowledge, since it's based on the possible acts that God that could be done by the omnipotence of His nature. Right? So, God necessarily knows all possible worlds He could have created. And all possible histories that His providence could have directed. Right? Does that make sense? Since God knows Himself, He knows all that He could do. Okay. So, for instance, I, I suppose that God could have made a world very similar like ours, except for the sky is green instead of blue. Right? I suppose that that's something God could have done. Um, there, but there are many things that God could do, but doesn't do. Right? So you think of Christ and before the crucifixion and how He says that if He wanted, there could be you know, legions of angels sent to save Him. Well, God could have done that, but He doesn't do that. Right? He didn't do that. Um, there are infinite possibilities that the mind of God contemplated, so to speak, though He only ordained one world history. So, in the mind of God, there are infinite things that God could potentially do, and it's out of that infinite well that God fashioned His decree for this particular world. Does that make sense? Okay. So, Burkhoff, I've got a quote, says this knowledge, talking about his natural knowledge, or necessary knowledge, he says, this knowledge furnishes the material for the decree. It is the fountain, the perfect fountain out of which God drew the thoughts which he des desired to objectify. Okay? So that's his necessary knowledge. It's everything God knows he could potentially do. Okay, now, secondly, there's what's called God's free knowledge. This is the second category. And sometimes this is called his knowledge of vision. Um, God's free knowledge is His knowledge of all things actual. Okay, so we're no longer talking about only what God could potentially do, but all things that God actually did do and made actual. And this is called His free knowledge because it rests on the divine freedom to decree and to will certain possibilities and not others. Right? So God necessarily knows all that He could potentially do, but because he is a God, or because he is a God who knows himself, but he knows all things actual freely, because the only reason they are actual is because he freely willed and decreed them to be. Right? So God has perfect knowledge of all things that will be in this world because he has decreed them to be. Okay? So with that in mind, with that said, look at your confession again if you've got it open. It says, although God knoweth whatsoever may or can come to pass upon all supposed conditions. So just pause there. So how does God know all things whatsoever may or can come to pass? The Reformed position answers He knows it because He decreed it. Right? Uh, the decree, God's decree, is the basis of His foreknowledge of all that may or can come to pass. 
But then there's the confession's denial. Yet, hath he not decreed anything because he foresaw it as future or as that which would come to pass upon such conditions? So what the confession is denying is that God decreed anything because he foresaw it as future. And here, as I say, they have in view both the Arminians and the Molinists. Okay? So I'll, I'll read the summary here. I know I'm probably belaboring the point. I just want it to be very clear in our minds what the Reformed position is. The Reformed see God's decree as the basis of His foreknowledge of things future because He has willed to bring them about. Arminians and Molinists make God's foreknowledge of things future the basis of His decree. That's the issue. Okay? Let me pause there, actually. Um, as I was preparing this, I didn't feel like that would be too much, but then as I was teaching, I thought maybe that it is confusing. Any, any questions or, or even just like, does that make any sense? Is that the distinction between God's necessary knowledge of what He knows He could do, and out of that necessary knowledge, He decrees the world that He actually wanted to decree, and that decree is the basis of His foreknowledge of everything that happens within this world. Rather than foreseeing something, from outside himself and that being the basis of his decree. Does that make sense? Okay. So, um, let's, let's move into Arminianism and, and Molinism. Now, there are several variations between one, Arminianism, one Arminian and another Arminian, right? Um, Arminius, after whom Arminianism is named, had a different Arminianism than, say, Wesley. Okay, there's even variations between the two. And there are also some variations between Molinism and Arminianism, though they do share a lot in common. And in fact, Arminius was himself one who embraced a lot of Molinus, um, the guy behind Molinism's thought. And that's what fashioned Arminius with a lot of his explanations for his system of Arminianism. Um, but here's what they have in common. Both Arminians and Molinists make God's decree conditional upon His foreknowledge rather than saying, no, God has foreknowledge of the world because He has decreed it to be. So let, let's open up each view just kind of briefly and see what they assert. Um, Arminians view God's foreknowledge as what's called passive vision. Okay, so we're moving on to that section in your outline, passive vision. Um, so, for instance, it's probably best explained if I give you people who actually hold this view and you just listen to them rather than me trying to summarize it. Um, a gentleman named Boethius, who was not technically an Arminian, but nonetheless substantiated essentially their view, he illustrated it this way okay, when he talked about God's foreknowledge. He compared God to a man looking down upon a world from a great height. And from this eternal vantage point, he said God sees all events, but, listen, his seeing them and his sight of them does not necessitate them any more than a man seeing another man walking down the street makes that act predetermined and not freely chosen, right? So I can look out my window and I see a man walking across the sidewalk. The fact that I see that is not causing that man to walk across the sidewalk, right? He suggests that that's similar to how God views history. Um, or V.E. Watts, I've put this quote in your handout. He said, God is like a spectator at a chariot race. He watches the actions the charioteers perform, but this does not cause them. Okay? 
So I think you can see there why it's called passive vision, right? Um, It's this idea that God passively knows the future without Himself determining the future. And it's this line of thought that Arminians follow. Uh, They teach that God has the capacity to directly view the future. However, even they themselves admit that how God can do that is a mystery. Okay, now, now, here's why Armenians struggle to explain how that can be. Let, listen to this. Here's the thing. If God is passively seeing the future but not causing the future that He's seeing, what it, where exactly and from whom exactly did that future come from? Right? So, to use an analogy, um, if God is watching a movie but He didn't cause the movie to be directed and acted out, he's just passively watching the movie. Where did the movie come from? Who's the director? Because, as we saw in chapter 2, God is of Himself existence, and the only reason anything can exist is because of what? The God who is existence causing it to exist. There is no such thing as anything outside of God without God causing it to be. Right? So, a major problem with the character of God with this view, um, Roger Olson, I put this quote uh, in your handout. Honestly, most Arminians aren't willing to speak as honestly as Olson speaks. And while it's hard to listen to and swallow, uh, I'm thankful that at least he recognizes where his position leads. Okay? He says, classical, and and Olson is a a modern-day Arminian, okay? He says, classic free-will theists speaking of himself, believe that God foreknows the entire course of the future as well as its end. God simply knows the future because it will happen. His knowing future free decisions and actions of creatures does not determine them. Rather, that they will happen determines God's knowing them because God has decided to open Himself up to being affected by the world. Now, that is really bad theology on a number of issues. Okay? To say that God has opened Himself up to the world in that way, immutability has just gone out the window, right? and, and a whole host of other things. But you, you get where He's coming from and where they're coming from. So, um, the, the only place Arminians have for the decree of God is that God decrees what He already foresaw was going to happen. Right? Armenians really don't have much place for the decree. And many of them don't even talk about it. Because really it's redundant. He already saw that the future was going to happen and so all he does is apparently decree that it will happen. And we've all heard that explanation of, of salvation, right? Of, you know, God looks down the corridor of time. He sees who will believe, who will not. And on that basis, now I'm going to decree them to believe. That doesn't make sense. You already saw them believing, Right? It's, it's a decree outside of God that he's basically just putting his stamp on like, yeah, we're going to go this way. We're going to do this one. So, um, Gordon Clark actually gave a good, I think this is a good illustration to explain just why Arminianism doesn't work. He said, speaking of chess, he said, do I decide to use the Queen's Pawn opening in a chess term, tournament because somehow I can predict that this will happen? Or am I able to predict that I shall use this opening because I have decided to. And he says the answer is obvious, is it not? Right? I don't make a certain I don't know that I'm gonna make a certain move because I foreknew it would happen and then I do it. 
I know, I'm, I know it's going to happen because I've decreed to do it, right? So if, just, just a closing paragraph on Arminianism, um, if we reduce God's foreknowledge to passive vision, if we reduce His foreknowledge to passive vision that is detached from His will, which makes Him a mere spectator, we deny the biblical truth of God's lordship over all things. Okay? Um, the Bible, on the other hand, subordinates everything to the sovereign will of God. Right? God's knowledge of future events must be subordinate to His eternal ordination of those events. Okay? He knows what the future holds because He has determined what the future holds. Does that make sense? Okay, let's move on to Molinism. That's all I'm going to say about Arminianism. Um, Molin, how many of us have heard of Molinism or middle knowledge? Okay, a good number. Um, too many people listening to James White, that's why. <laughs> um, Molinism is held by some people today. Uh, one well-known um, uh, gentleman who holds it is William Lane Craig. Probably many of us or some of us have heard of him. And it gets its name from um, a Jesuit priest, um, Luis de Molina. Okay, that's where Molinism comes from. It's from the gentleman's last name. And, scary enough, along with him, it was a guy named Fonseca. So, <laughs> so for, what it's, for what it's worth. <laughs> um, Molinism, I'll be honest, Molinism is hard to comprehend. It's not an easy system to really even understand what exactly they're saying. I'll try to do my best. Um, it's, Molinism is no, it's almost synonymous with the term middle knowledge because that's, that's the main thing uh, Molinism contributes to this discussion about God's sovereign decree and human freedom. Um, and I'll explain why it's called middle, middle knowledge. Okay? Now, that's why I wanted to start out with the Reformed view first. When I explain the Reformed view of God's knowledge, you have on the one hand God's necessary knowledge, right? His knowledge of Himself and therefore all that He could potentially do. And then you have His free knowledge, which rests upon the freedom of His will. And this is His knowledge of all things that He actually decrees to make actual, right? Everyone still remember that? Okay. Middle knowledge, in their view, stands between those two. Okay? That's why it's called middle knowledge. It's in between the necessary knowledge and the free knowledge of God. Um, middle knowledge, I've, I think I've put this in your handout just to kind of give you a concise what it is. Middle knowledge consists of God's eternal awareness of what any possible agent may choose to do under specific circumstances. Okay, so I'll give you an example from William Lane Craig. William Lane Craig says that God eternally knew that under a particular set of circumstances, Peter would deny Christ three times. And Craig says that this is a certain, albeit hypothetical truth, regardless of whether God actually made Peter and put him in those circumstances. Okay? So, in other words, they, they see three logical moments of knowledge in the mind of God. Okay? And a gentleman named Kenneth Keithley has helpfully summarized these with the words could, would, and will. I've put those in your handout. First, God knows what could happen in the realm of possibilities, right? That's his necessary knowledge. 
Second, he knows what would happen if free moral agents were placed in particular circumstances. And then, that's middle knowledge. And then thirdly, he knows what will happen because he chooses our particular world out of all the possibilities. Okay? Now, middle, as I mentioned, middle knowledge was actually incorporated into our, the Arminian system. Uh, Arminius was influenced by Molina. Um, there's a book that I want to read that I think would be good called Was Arminius, uh, was Arminius uh, a Molinist? And um, there, there is a close connection between the two. Um, because Arminians thought it gave a rational account for how God could foreknow all future events and yet still allow humans to be independently choosing how they respond to divine grace. Okay? Um, so notice, going back to the similarities between Arminianism and Molinism, notice in both of these systems you have God not causing or determining the decisions of free creatures as you have in the Reformed view, but you have God simply knowing them. And in the case of Molinism, God essentially just chooses to decree the world that He knew would best fit His goals. Okay? Um, so, for instance, in Molinism, you don't have God decreeing and working out His purpose in human history. You have God presented with options of millions of worlds, right? He knows what could happen and what would happen given any specific circumstance. And based on those options, if you will, that God foresees, though He does not determine them, He chooses the one that He wants to make actual. Right? Does that make sense? Okay. Um, so you, you have a decree in the sense that God... I think I've already said this. You have a decree in the sense that God does decree to actually make a world actual but he's simply putting a world into action that was presented to him from the free choices that sinner or people would make. Okay? So we supply the deck, he chooses the card, sort of thing. Now, okay, let's talk about, because probably in our reform circles, we probably hear more about Arminian, Arminianism than we do about Molinism. So I want to be fair and open up, what evidence do they point to biblically for arriving at their conclusion? Um, what, what support does Molinism have scripturally? Well, Molina himself would appeal to passages like 1 Samuel 23, uh, 23, 10-12. And I know I didn't have enough room to actually put the Scripture on your, on your outline because I was really trying to squeeze it in. But you can turn there or look at it later if you want. But 1 Samuel 23, 10-12 is where the Lord tells David that the men of Calah will hand David over to Saul if they're given the opportunity, right? So God essentially tells David, if you go here, they will turn you over. And then David decides, I'm not going to go there, and so he doesn't, you know, he, he doesn't get tur uh, turned in or whatever. Um, another text that Molina would appeal to is Christ's statement in uh, Matthew 11 that Tyre and Sidon, this is, Jesus says, to Bethsaida and Cherazin. He says, Tyre and Sidon would have repented if they had seen the miracles that I have done in your midst, right? And so, Jesus is saying, if what I did here had been done in those areas, they would have repented, right? Now, let me ask you, between those two examples, 
Did, any, did either of those two events, events actually happen in this world? Did, no, Ad, uh, not Adam. David did not get handed over, even though God said, you will get handed over if you go here. And Tyre and Sidon didn't repent because Jesus didn't do the signs among them, right? Okay, so Molina argued, he points to these kinds of texts, and he argues that these are statements that shows God's hypothetical or his knowledge of people's hypothetical choices that they would have made if the circumstance were right and were different, right? Do you see how he's kind of seeing his system there? Of like, wait, it seems like God knows not only what actually happens, but it seems that he has this middle knowledge of what free creatures would also do if the circumstances would be different, right? Okay. Are there other ways to explain those texts, though? There are. Very plain and easy ones. Um, For instance, um, it seems more likely to me that God's statement to David about Saul and the men of Calah is better understood as a revelation of the intentions of the wicked men to harm David, right? God is just, he's simply telling David, David, if you go there, they hate you. They're going to kill you. They're going to harm you, right? Um, It's not all of a sudden this... um, speculative revelation of, of this knowledge God has called middle knowledge, right? Um, same, thing with, um, same thing with Matthew 11. Um, let's see. Yeah, in terms of his state, Christ's statements about Tyre and Sidon, um, I think Jesus is, it simply functions to highlight the great wickedness of the unbelieving Galileans, right? He's just making a comparison, He's not like revealing some secret middle knowledge. He's simply saying, hey, those guys are really, were really wicked. They would have repented even before you did here. Um, and it's also very possible that Jesus is just using that metaphorically, right? Similar to the way Jesus said that if, if these people don't cry out, God will raise up, st- or the, the stones will cry out, right? He wasn't saying that literally in another world, given different circumstances, the stones would have cried out. It's just a metaphorical statement, right? So we got to be careful how far we, we press that. Um, but just for fun, okay, let's say that Christ's words weren't just metaphorical about Tyre and Sidon. Let, let's, say, let's say He really is saying He knows what Tyre and Sidon would have done if the Gospel had been brought to them. Is the only way to explain that middle knowledge? No, Calvinists could explain that too. Right? Um, like, yeah, it, do, it doesn't necessarily mean that all of a sudden the only explanation for that is middle knowledge must be true. Um, for instance, um, if you've got your Bible open to Matthew chapter 11, just four verses later, uh, what is it, verse 25? So Matthew 11, verse 25. Four verses later, Jesus says this He's praying. He says, I thank you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that you have hidden these things from the wise and prudent and have revealed them to babes. Then listen, even so, Father, for it seemed good in your sight. So according to Jesus, why are some believing the gospel and others are not right now? Because it was the goodwill of the Father to reveal it to some and to hide it from others, right? He says that four verses later after saying, Tyre and Sidon would have repented if the signs done among you would have been done among them. And um, it seems to me that what Jesus is saying is that 
Yes, he knows what Tyre and Sidon would have done because he knows what God would have decreed to have done in their hearts had the Gospel been brought to them. Right? So you can also explain that by use of a sovereign decree. You don't have to resort to this idea of, of uncaused middle knowledge uh, on God's part. Okay? And also, by the way, it's very ironic that Arminians or Molinists even want to appeal to this section of Scripture because this states that God did not send the Gospel to people that apparently would have believed it had they heard it, which is a very strong display of divine reprobation, which Arminians don't like. And so, it's, I don't know. They have to pick and choose, and they're in a hard spot. Um, so, we're, we're getting close, close to the end here. Molinism just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. And in fact... I believe William Lane Craig, I'm, I'm just going to paraphrase, I think even he admits that it's not a system that's derived from the Bible. It's a system that is not necessarily, he thinks, inconsistent with the Bible. <laughs> so he admits it's not like you're going to derive this from, from the Scriptures, but at least it doesn't seem, at least in his mind, to really contradict the Scriptures, and so we can lay it upon them and kind of use it as a grid. Okay? That's not a good way to do theology. You want to derive your theology from the Scripture. It should be plain. Um, But Molinism, just like the Arminians' passive vision, it just doesn't stand up to scrutiny. Um, And not only does it not stand up, it leaves the door wide open for open theism and uncertain foreknowledge on God's part. Um, The Sassinians would later exploit the errors of... um, of Molinism because they saw its weakness about seeming to make God ignorant of the future free choices of humans. And they exploited that and became basically essentially open theists and all sorts of other bad, bad things. So it, it is a weak system that very quickly can get away from you and lead to much worse uh, heresy and things like that. Um, but more than that, Molinism doesn't even solve the problem it seeks to solve, okay? Because think about it. Even in the Molinist, Molinist system, you still have God deciding and decreeing which set of circumstances to actualize, right? So God doesn't, he's not even gotten off the hook. Because even if you want to say, well, yeah, he set in motion the world that he, you know, he foreknew would happen given certain circumstances. He still decreed to do it, right? And so when it comes to issues like suffering and all sorts of things like that, it really is a form of fatalism in which God is not working out His purpose through those things. He just, for some irresponsible reason, chose a world that was filled with so much bad, and that, but somehow that makes Him feel better. And it doesn't. It shouldn't make you feel better. It should make you fearful that God... I don't, it seems that God is somewhat just shooting from the hip here and he can't have a lot of meaning and purpose behind things like suffering and sin and things like that. Um, so anyway, it's, it's an unhappy solution for people who are looking to escape their perceived problems with Reformed theology. Okay, I'll put it that way. Okay, foreknowledge through divine decree. Last section before our brief application. Okay, foreknowledge through divine decree. Uh, James Usser said, quote, Is this foreknowledge of God the cause of why things are done? No, but His will. Okay? So I'll just say it again. God eternally knows what will take place in history because He has decreed it before time began. 
And He will execute His purpose according to His unfailing providence. Okay? So Isaiah 46, 9 and 10. Very well-known passage. God says, Remember the former things of old, for I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like Me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things that are not yet done, knowing, or I mean, notice, saying, My counsel shall stand and I will do all my good pleasure. Okay? Very different from the way the Arminian and the Molinist wants to describe why God has decreed this world. God says, My counsel is what is being worked out. My my pleasure is what is being done in this world history. So God can declare the end of history from the very beginning of history because He's the one who planned the end from the beginning. Um, wh- whether it's speaking of the Israel- Israelites' conquest of Canaan and entering the land um, or, or their restoration back into the land, God declared that He had spoken it and therefore it would come to pass. Right? Think of Christ's death. Christ's suffering and death happened according to Acts 2 and 4 and Luke 22, 22. It happened as it was determined. Right? Not as it was foreseen or as it was presented to Him as one option and then God kind of hit the button to like, yep, let's make this one actually happen. Right? Christ was crucified according to the definite plan and purpose of God. And this, this provides a solid basis for certainty of God's knowledge of the future. Right? God knows all that He has planned. John, John Gill, I don't know if I put this quote in there. He says, Now certain, now certain and immutable fall, uh, f- excuse me, certain and immutable foreknowledge, such as the foreknowledge of God, is founded upon some certain and immutable cause, which can be no other than the divine will. God foreknows certainly that such and such things will be because He has determined in His will that they should be. Okay? Now briefly, four implications. Four implications okay, from God's unconditional decree. First of all, we should stand in awe as the people of God. Okay? We should never grow so familiar with the doctrine of God's foreknowledge that we fail to be astonished that unlike us, God knows the future before it exists. Okay? I mean, how great must God be that He knows the, be- the end from the beginning? A.W. Pink says, How exalted above the wisest man is the Lord. None of us knows what a day may bring forth, but all things future are open to His omniscient gaze. God knows all... There, there is no future, technically speaking, with God. Because He just is. But from our vantage point, He knows everything that has happened past, in the present, and will happen in the future perfectly because He is the One who has decreed it to come to pass. Secondly, we ought to worship God for His unconditional decree. We ought to praise the Lord as the Lord of the future. And thus, as the only true God. Okay, We don't have time this afternoon, but... One of the ways that Isaiah, in terms of proving that Yahweh is the one and only true God against the false God, is that Yahweh can declare the future. He can also explain the past, but He can say what's going to happen before it happens. False gods can't do that. Um, 
We are to glorify God because He alone among all beings is able to know the future with absolute unfailing certainty. Okay? Idols and false gods know nothing at all. Men err in their guesses and their predictions. Men are often surprised. They're often left scrambling to adjust their plans. Not the Lord. He is the Lord of the future and He is therefore alone worthy of worship. Thirdly, we should respond with humility before God's unconditional decree. As we acknowledge that He is the God who has declared the future from the beginning, we should acknowledge that we, by definition, are not that way. We are not God who knows what tomorrow will bring forth. And therefore, we ought to make our plans with humility because our lives are like vapors and we don't know what tomorrow holds for us. And we ought to say, like James and James 4 tells us, if the Lord wills, we will do this or that. God's knowledge of the future reminds us that we are not God and our times are in His hands. Lastly, lastly we, should, we should hope in the Lord. <clears throat> we should hope in the Lord. <coughs> Excuse me. We must, because of this, trust God's promises for the future. Right? I mean, this, this. Imagine just the effect it would have on your prayer life and your confidence if you believed in open theism. If you genuinely believe that God wasn't sure what is going to happen in five minutes until it happens. What, what does that do for your confidence? Yeah, yeah, nosedive, right? Because how can you rely on a God who is reacting just the way I'm reacting? Yeah, He might do it better than me, but He doesn't apparently have any purpose in it. Because God knows the future, because He has decreed the, world, uh, the, the future, it means that none of His words of promise, particularly as they have to do with our salvation, can fail. None of His promises will fall to the ground. And we should especially trust the great promise that Christ is going to return in glory to judge the earth and to bring everlasting joy to His people. Nothing derails God's plan to glorify Himself. Just as God says, these words are true and faithful. And so therefore, let us stake our lives upon them and be thankful that this world is because of God's decree, not the other way around. Okay, I'll, I'll close there and be done there. Any questions, interaction, comments, things like that? I have a couple questions. Sure. Uh, the first one being... Yeah, there you go. Okay. Uh, one, because I know for like, at least Craig, he would deny simplicity. Do you think, which one comes first? Do you think the Molinism informs the simplicity? Or do you think the simplicity informs the Molinism? And then the other question is, what's the knee-jerk reaction to the reform vision of the decree that makes them go into this category? What, what about, you know, the reformed understanding of decree makes them go, yeah, but when you do that, you lose this really important part of the Bible. So those are the two questions. Okay, so the first one, 
Um, I can't. I can't honestly give a response. I, I'd have to think about it. The question was because Craig, William Lane Craig denies divine simplicity. He's all, he also holds the middle knowledge, and basically you're asking, is there connection, and if there is, which comes first, sort of thing, like which causes the other. I don't know. I can't answer that honestly. But I didn't really understand your second question because I couldn't hear you perfectly. Oh no, I was saying how what's the what's the what's their issue? Like they go, well, in the reform view, you lose this with God. You lose this Bible uh, verse. You you lose something, right? Um, so like I know it's been said. In, in like the free grace versus lordship salvation is you, you lose man's free will, right? Because it's better that people choose to love God, you know, that yeah. kind of thing. It's their knee-jerk reaction. Yeah. So in this, what's their like, well, that's great and all and it's scriptural, but here's what you miss out on when you are in that view. Yeah. What's that? Yeah. 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 So, sorry. Let me repeat. There's a, for those who are tuning in. There's a lot of people in the audience chiming in, but they don't have a mic, so you have no clue what they're saying. Basically, one statement was they want to hold on to man's um, ability to choose, um, and part of that is also coupled with. Um, I mean, that's why Molina came up with the system that he did. Is that's what he was wrestling with? Is how can a sovereign exhaustive decree that even includes the free, the free creatures of men, how can that still leave room for human responsibility and accountability, right? So to be fair, some of these guys, I think we, and we, should, we should do this when we're talking and interacting with others. To be fair, a lot of people, when they first hear about Reformed theology, they have a good desire. They, they, they're trying to uphold something that they think is biblical and they think that Calvinism erodes human responsibility, right? But the reason that they do that is because they're not willing to hold the tensions, I think, that we're willing to hold. So, Scripture, I mean, the tension throughout the Bible is that God decrees everything. The, the heart of the king is in the hand of the Lord like a river and he turns it wherever he wills. And yet, the king, like, in, like Nebuchadnezzar, is held responsible for his sin. Right? And, and God has to humble him. And so you have both of those. And so I think the biblical thing to do is humbly submit to both of those, even if you don't understand it, rather than say they can't both be true and so I'm going to have to deny or alter clear statements on either side. Right? And usually it's God who has to get changed in order to keep man's sovereign free will. So I would say that's a big one. Thaddeus also mentioned the problem of evil. Um, they're trying to get... God off, out of, well, and to be fair, I should be careful how I say it, we affirm that God is not the author of sin, and he's not the doer or the approver of those who, are, who sin, um, but nonetheless, he did decree sin, absolutely, right, because it wouldn't be if God didn't decree it, um, but they think that that logically leads to the conclusion that that therefore makes God himself sinful or a sinner, whereas we would deny, we, again, it's a category, we would say, no, God can decree that sin be in such a way that it's the second cause who's actually committing sin, the creature, so that God is not tainted by sin, nor does he approve of sin. And again, it's one of those things that's like, are you willing to just accept that tension? Um, and I, I think many of them are not. And so they want to get... But again, to, the point that I made, 
It doesn't even get God off the hook, though, because he still presses the button to set this world in motion that he foresaw this is how it's going to go under all these circumstances. So, I mean, what's really better? Sure, you've moved it one step, but you still kind of have to ask the question, why did God do it, right? Go ahead, Aaron. Or, oh, I just, uh, the follow-up to that, I suspected that would be somewhat the answer. Then, because uh, it's, never, it's never an intellectual issue. It's never just that. It, there's, there's always a, a heart thing going sure. on in the mind of anybody who's coming to any sort of truth, right? We don't do purely intellectual theology. Yep. Yep. So when we're dealing with Molinists or Arminians, how do we... How do you address that underlying issue? Yeah, how do we say... Yeah. How, how can, can we... Because, uh, you know, we're just in... The, how can we say, like... Your, your issue is with God. You have a problem, not intellectually here, but you have a heart problem with submitting. Because like, yeah. that's what it, So how do you be kind and not basically, well, actually, you're not a Christian. Because we don't know that. Yeah. Do you know what I'm trying to ask? Yeah, I think I'm so. I'm trying to real, use real, my words real carefully. Quick, if I answer that, Aaron, is it going to derail what you were going to ask? Okay. Um, no, that's a good question. Yeah, because we... Our main, our main problem with, I mean, by nature, and even as Christians with our remaining corruption, is it's not, the mind has been affected by sin, and it still is, right, even in Christians. But it's more than that. Uh, there's deeper issues going on. And so, to your point, like, I, I don't have the quote in front of me, um, but I had another quote from Roger uh, Olson. I said it to some of you guys. Basically, a student asked him in a classroom, if God revealed to you by some miraculous way that absolutely could not be denied that, Cal- that God really is the way Calvinism says He is, would you worship such a God? And Olson's response was, though I knew my answer would shock them, or many of them, my immediate answer was, no, I could not worship such a God because such a God would be a monster. Right? That right there, the issue is that he has put himself in the place of God and he is determining what God must be, who God must be. And if God's not like that, I'll have nothing to do with that, right? That is the height of arrogance, right? And idolatry, he's, he's making God into his own image. So, just I say that to the point, to, to your point of. People may not say it that plainly, and I'm glad they usually don't, and they usually don't feel it that plainly, um, but there are those underlying issues of, what are you holding on to here? You're holding on to, perhaps, just concerned about, well, how is man responsible if God is sovereign? But more than that, you know, I, I chose Christ, right? And they want to retain some of that glory or credit, even though they might not use those words for it. And so I think we have to graciously, and I think the answer to how to do it is just applying wisdom and, uh, you know, learning when is an appropriate time to say certain things and um, making sure that we understand where someone's coming from before we, you know, launch in with accusations. But yeah, if someone repeatedly is just like, I can't submit to that, even though you're pointing them to text and they're like, I can't explain that any other way, but I'm just not going to embrace it. That's, I think, when you're like, hey, like, level with me for a second. You admit that you have no other explanation for this, but you're still unwilling to submit to it. Why is that, right? And I think those are helpful. Again, 
Genuine Christians are capable of that, right? I'm not saying that. I mean, I struggled a lot for a long time with, with Calvinism and stuff. So I think we need to be patient. But yeah, we do need to address those underlying issues. Sorry, that was too long-winded. Does that, is that helpful at all? Okay. A couple things there. Yeah, I think what you were touching on there at the end is something that is so often easy for us to overlook. Is like, what do we do when someone denies God's unconditional election? Well, we show them Scripture, and we show it to them in God's Word, and if they believe God's Word, they want to submit to it, right? Yep. And so oftentimes people are not, people, are, people reject Reformed theology simply because of ignorance. They don't know that God's Word actually teaches it. They're yeah, just ignorance. ignorant of, of yeah. the fact of what Scripture says. Um, and so if that's the case, then just presenting them with Scripture will cause great rejoicing as they come to see like, oh, this is what Scripture says and this yeah. is what I will believe. But as to the point with Roger Olson, that is a major issue is that the whole Arminian worldview it was brought about in order to try to get God off the hook, yes. to try to make God not responsible because as Romans 9 paints God, he looks bad to the eyes of fallen man. Yep. And so if you are trying to reconcile God's justice in the eyes of sinful man, there's a major problem there because you're never going to be able to. Yep. Sinful man is never going to recognize God as just and good yep. in his eternal decree. Yep. And so if that's our standard for morality, is what does the unbeliever think is good for God to do? You've totally lost the point. You've lost yep. the plot. And that's where Roger Olson is. He's lost the plot because he's trying to justify God to those who hate God, which yeah. is foolishness. Um, and so if you're bound and determined on that, that's a major problem. The other issue is traditionalism. That, you know, what? traditionalism. Yes, yeah. That uh, Calvinism, Reformed theology is just new to many people in our day and age. It's not popular. And so most Christians were not saved or in a church where there's any kind of understanding of God's sovereignty. And that's another huge hurdle that you might have to overcome in conversations with them is, look, it's not your pastor who baptized you who determines what sound doctrine is. It's God's word. Yeah. And to, to point them to that and require that of them, that we hold to the truthfulness, sufficiency, and necessity of Scripture. Um, I forgot the thing earlier. You, I did forget. forget. I thought I would hold on to it. Um, but, uh, that was my, all just introduction, yeah. right? Yeah, and now you've forgotten the main point. Yeah, I lost the plot. <laughs> um, but another thing that I was thinking of earlier is just, it's astonishing with the analogy of a man walking down the street, how blind do you have to be to recognize that there's a difference between God who made the man yeah. and another man who is just a neighbor to the man. Yeah. Like, that's yeah. a fundamental foundational difference. Um, oh, that's the other thing. You were talking about how Molinism only takes it back a step. Mm -hmm. It doesn't fix the problem. It only takes it back a step. And I think their justification is, well, as long as God is making those decisions with hypothetical people yeah. and not real, actual, present people, that's fine with me. Yeah. And I think that really does relate to um, the, the, the rise of deism, and especially why that's so popular in our culture today is the, the deistic view that God you know, made the world set it up to run and then put his hands off of it and yeah. just watches it go, that is the foundational worldview of the world who believes in a God, yeah. is that there is a God who made stuff and just his hands are off. Yeah. They don't believe that God is intervening and doing things yep. because of rationalism and all of that. And I think that's why it has such a foothold. 
yeah. because it does. It, it, it doesn't require any present miraculous, present divine intervention in the world. Yeah. And I think that's why it's popular among unbelievers yeah. um, and popular among those who want to defend God to unbelievers. Yeah, yeah thanks, Aaron. Uh, Amanda and then Phil. Yeah, I was just thinking of like how we relate said to those who we think truly are, you know, regenerate Christians yeah. who are, who have lost the plot, who have lost that. Um, I came across um, a letter uh, that Whitfield, George Whitfield wrote to um, um, Wesley. Wesley, that yeah. did that whole interaction yeah. there. And just the, the charity, yeah. the deep love for Wesley that, yeah. you know, who was like a mentor to, you know, Whitfield. Yeah. And just like how much he was pleading over him to, you know, to see from scripture, you know, his departure and going into these routes. And, um, that left a great impression on me. Just like on how, how does a, how do I engage someone in this, um, with love? Um, but he was very, you know, he, he was willing to break his brother's heart, you know, to, to tear their relationships on because of the importance of the heroes that he was, yeah. to engage with yeah. um, and that's you know I think for me and for all of us just remembering that um, these are our brothers and sisters some of them who have started to not see clearly or who have not um, found a way to hold all of scripture together and that we're do- I think we are doing things properly according to scripture yeah. um, but it's by grace um, but it's also that sorrow we need to feel that you know, they may just be like one generation away from them losing the faith, like their children, their yeah. hearers, and um, having that that so that sober reality and the love of those who are um, aware of these things by pure grace and the yeah. Holy Spirit's light. Yeah. Um, so that charity, I think we still need to Amen. make sure we hold yeah. on to that. Yeah. And I, I really think that we need to be exhorted. I mean, I, I make jokes about cage stage Calvinists, you know, but I really do mean it. Like, um, and I'm guilty of this. I'm, I, I am, I previously in my former life was a cage stage Calvinist, right? And, and I was not a good testimony of what it looked like to be a Christian in the way I handled the truths. You know what I mean? Even though theologically I still think I was right, because I, and I still agree with what I believed back then, the way I handled it. And, and I think we need to be very slow and charitable and kind of similar to what I was talking about this morning of just not like the moment you realize someone's not a Calvinist doesn't mean that that's the moment to draw daggers. You know what I mean? Like if they're in Christ, we have a lot more in common than we have out, you know, not in common. And so let's remember that very a very... Like, I believe there are many, many, many sincere Arminians who are on their way to heaven, right? Um, some of my good friends are Arminians, uh, or different variations of that, right? And we really are friends, and we have a relationship, and we even talk about spiritual things, and we can encourage one another in the Lord. Um, and from time to time, we, we duke it out on, you know, Calvinism and predestination and whatever, but we still remain friends, you know what I mean? And so I, I think we need to foster that um, of not demonizing. Now, to be fair, I don't mean that. I mean, there are lines like with Olson, Aaron, you know, would share the same concern. 
at that point, you're going into a whole nother realm. It's not, it's not just an issue of like, you know, free will and whatever. At that point, it's like you've basically made yourself the arbiter of what God needs to be. And you've just put your foot down. If he ain't like that, then, <laughs> you know, see ya. And it's like, that, that is idolatry. Like, that's rank sin. You know what I mean? That's not just misunderstanding. That's like arrogance. So I, I would just say there's a, there's a spectrum. So if it's, if it's something like that, it might be something where I start to wonder, like, do they even know Christ? You know? But for the vast majority, like Aaron was saying, it's usually due to ignorance. They've been in not so good churches that haven't taught them very well. Um, and as we probably everyone in this room knows, even when you do get in a good context where you start to get taught it, it's not like day one, it just like, you know, or at least for me, there was a struggle. I felt like my worldview was crumb, my, you know, the pillars of my worldview were crumbling and I didn't have anything to rebuild on. You know what I mean? I felt like my whole view of God was changing. So I, I just think we should be patient and charitable and still enjoy sweet fellowship with people are in the faith, even if they disagree with us on these things. You know what I mean? We can still like rejoice in Christ. And so, anyway, Phil, can you hear me? Um, I think one of the knee-jerk reactions are free will. Like, don't we have free will? Like, you're saying we have no free will. What's the problem is some people say there is no free will. Sorry, can you speak just a little louder or turn them? Yeah, up let me minutes? get closer. So, um, the free will is the main knee-jerk reaction I've encountered. But if you look in, in the confession, it's about free will. Yep. So there is free will, but it's what does that mean yep. to have free will? And so when I had a conversation like with my family, it's like, well, I'm not saying there's no free will, but what is free will? And man was created, but then he was un- immutable so he could fall, and he fell. Yep. And then he become enslaved to sin, so your will is enslaved. So there is a free will, but it's been enslaved. And God is the one who does free us again through him. Um, to do what is pleasing and right. But they just need your reaction is, oh, you say there's no free will. That's, yeah. that's, that's like, you don't have common sense. And yeah. so it kind of shuts off communication. Yeah. So I think to take it back to, well, what do and how does that work? So Yeah. Is the mic cutting out? Yeah, yeah I got you. I, I got the gist of what you're saying, though. Uh, were you specifically talking about maybe, maybe Christians who do believe in these things but haven't understood them as nuanced as they should and just kind of maybe unhelpfully say things like there is no such thing as free will yeah 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 and and we uh we shouldn't say that i mean chapter nine of our confession is called of free will so yeah it's but to your point it's how we define that and that's where that's where the debate lies right and so while we would reject certain definitions of free will we certainly do still maintain a position that man has a will in the sense that he is accountable for his acting upon his choice, right? And so, yeah. Adrian. I don't have a question, but I was just going to um, piggyback on what you said about First uh, Samuel 23 yeah. and um, how we, we also have an explanation for why that, those verses are, are written the way they're written. I've, I've also seen people use that same one uh, as an uh, excuse to say that there's, uh, you can, that God has, uh, has, has false prophecies as well. And so 
yeah, people mm. will use these verses for anything. And if there's someone yeah. actually using a different uh, explanation than what Mullenism is using, then that just throws Mullenism out of the window. Yeah. So just jumping off of what you're saying. Yeah, no, that's, I, I agree. I mean, again, to like what William Lane Craig said of, like, could you kind of from the outside squeeze Mullenism into Matthew 11 or 1 Samuel 23? It's like, Kinda, if you really want to push it there, you know what I mean? It doesn't even, well, actually, I wouldn't say you can do that with Matthew 11 because of what Jesus says afterwards, but, but it's like, okay, maybe you could kind of like say probably that's what's going on here, but it's like, why? There's nowhere else in the Bible that says anything about this. And in fact, we have plenty of things that contradict it, that say that this is according to God's decree, right? Um, so yeah, it's very interesting. I mean, even like John four this morning, I would, I would, I don't know this, but I would guess that they would appeal like when Jesus says, if you had known, uh, who it is who speaks with you in the gift of God, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. I would think that they would even apply, um, appeal to verses like that. Like, see, <laughs> he knew in a different set of circumstances, what that woman would have done of her own uncoerced free will. And he could have chosen that world, but it's just like you step back for a moment and you're like, come on, <laughs> you're pushing it. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know how many you've run. I don't know how many you've run into, but I'm bummed out if you've run into too many. I, I don't. What's that? Yeah. Well, to be fair, that just means Joel Beakey is making it more biblical than, than they are. That's basically who I just... I just read Beakey and then I write these, so... Yeah. Did we have John? Yeah, I could just feel like I'm just throwing just extra thoughts into every question that's already been asked. But, yeah, just going off the first question, it's just uh, you're dealing with... Oh, wow. Ba-ba-ba. There we go. It's like you're dealing with the repercussions of each worldview, like ours would be for the reform, when there's no understanding is, is your God is the God that's decreed the, the child rapist to rape the stuff like that. And uh, yeah, we have those explanations. Um, but the repercussion for the other side is um, how did God know this is going to happen? And if it's the other side, then it's... Um, yeah, your God had to look into the future to see what happened. That means that there's a time that your God didn't know what would happen, which messes with his sovereignty, yeah. his all-knowingness. And as I was uh, getting saved out of my past church movement and into Reformed theology, which is having my past church re- uh, presuppositions ripped out from me, but replaced. Yeah, yeah. of my past worldview, and I, I just love asking this question all the time to other people of, uh, why do you get to go to heaven not the atheist or something? And, it, and yeah, it just all comes down to the people's free will, and, and they do want to be responsible for their salvation, yeah. things like that. It's, is it because, like me, like I left the Church of Christ, um, how come you in it, but I'm not in it, and I can't be saved. We have a different gospel. And, uh, uh, is it because I got fooled and you didn't? Wouldn't that make you, in God's eyes, smarter and like more obedient to me and things like that? Uh, I'm just thinking off of what Amanda said, too. Um, 
Man, I, I'm sure I did have my cage stage moments, but one thing I loved after I came out of the Church of Christ, who is like, they're the only people getting saved when you really questioned them to the end of it. I was so happy to find out, like, oh, there are saved Calvinists and Arminians. <laughs> like, praise God. <laughs> like, uh, and yeah, I, I've been around Arminians, and when they start on their theology, I'm actually just like, that's fine. I'm just, I don't even want to touch this. I'm just so happy that, like, we do have the same gospel. Yeah. Of your yeah. works do not get you in it is all Jesus, no Jesus plus or anything. And uh, it's fun to get in those conversations with them. But for the most part, I'll just, I'm just glad we're in fellowship. Like, yeah. Praise God that the world is bigger than it used to be for me. Yep. Yeah, yeah. All right, we should close with a hymn soon, unless there's any, any pressing questions. Otherwise, we can talk after. All right, let's sing, guys. Let's stand. We're going to sing number 35, Immortal, Invisible, God Only Wise. Number 35. Let's stand together.